If you'll take your Bibles and turn to Exodus 26 this morning. Exodus 26, we took a a brief pause from the book of Exodus during the month of December so that we could focus on the particular themes of Advent. I want to remind you where we left off back at the end of November. You can break down the book of Exodus this way, basically three categories. The Exodus itself, which is roughly chapters 1 through chapter 18. The law of God, roughly chapter 19 through 24. And then you have the, the, the instructions of the tabernacle and the building of the tabernacle, which is basically 25 through 40. This is the portion of Scripture where we pick up today. Uh, several months ago, I was asked early on in this series, how are you going to handle it once you get to the tabernacle? Uh, that's going to be pretty mundane for people. And the answer to that question, which I said back then, I could only vaguely understand even as I said it, we're just going to have to lift up the plane. You have to fly a little bit higher. You have to cover it in a broad biblical context so that you do not hear the specific details of the fine twined linen, the rings which will hold together the curtain. All of those things which are essential for that day are not so much essential for you and me. We're not going to build the tabernacle. Rather, we need to understand the tabernacle in its context. So the interest of time, 37 verses here in chapter 26. We're going to examine this by using selected passages from the text in order to catch the context. So the very first instruction which is given in chapter 26 is the innermost layer of the tabernacle. It's verse 1. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns. You shall make them with cherubim skillfully worked into them. And then this linen layer is covered with a layer of wool. These two layers of animal skins, they're spoken of in verse 7. Look at it. You shall also make curtains of goat's hair for a tent over the tabernacle. Eleven curtains you shall make. And then skip down to verse 14, the next layer. You shall make for the tent a covering of tanned ram's skin and a covering of goat skin on top. And next, God tells Moses what to put inside the tent how to separate the holy place from the most holy place. So we skip down to verse 31, and we'll read through verse 35. And you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. And you shall hang it on four pillars of acacia wood, overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold on four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place and the most holy place. You shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the holy place. And you shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand on the south side of the tabernacle opposite the table. And you shall put the table on the north side. And then finally you get the description of this outer curtain. In other words, this is the curtain that you must enter in order to go into the tabernacle. That's at verse 36. You shall make a screen for the entrance of the tent of blue and purple 
and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen embroidered, embroidered with needlework. This is God's word. Let's pray for his help in ministry. God, you know in your sovereignty all the distractions that have met us this day. Uh, You know how the evil one would love to snatch your word as it goes forth and to pull it away. But you are the king, and your word goes forth. And so we pray that you would give us the ears to hear, that you would silence the distractions and the voice of the evil one. Help us to see the beauty of a God who dwells with us, in whose name we pray. Amen. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, had no idea, but he set up for us the the theme of the book of Exodus. In his pride, he pompously said, Who is Yahweh that I should worship him and obey his voice? Who is Yahweh that I should let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh. And then Exodus operates off those words. This is the, the framework. Yahweh is the God who makes himself known. The rest of the book teaches us, as it did them, the attributes and the character and the heart of this one true God. And so you come to a passage like this, and it reads like architectural blueprints. Why did it matter to them? Why does it matter to us? Because Yahweh is still making himself known. For them, Moses is still up on Mount Sinai. And the details are so intricate because they really are going to build a tabernacle, chapter 35 to 40 of this book. That's what they're doing. But you and I are not called to build a tabernacle in order to know God. So then why do we pause to study this? Because God's making himself known. You and I have the whole Bible And so we might see the tabernacle in the context of all that God fulfills. What they could not see, we can see it. And that's how we're going to cover this in a broad biblical way in the coming weeks. It's been said that the tabernacle is Mount Sinai in the midst of the people. What does that mean? Mount Sinai is where God came down to dwell with his people. But you remember, really, there's three classes of of people on Mount Sinai, three categories, you might say. The first category is Moses. He's actually the only one who's up in the cloud. He's the only one who's in the presence of God. And the other category is Aaron and three others. And they're on the mountain, but they're not really in the presence of God. The final category is everybody else. It's all the people like you and me, All the way down at the bottom of the mountain, they cannot see God. They cannot come close to him. The point is so obvious. This holy God is is far away from sinful man unless he chooses, unless he finds a way to condescend to live with sinners. They will forever be separate. Before Jesus came to earth, The tabernacle was God's way of of coming all the way down among the people to make himself known. What is he saying that carries forward to you and me? Well, the tabernacle declares that God overcomes every obstacle to dwell with his people. That's really what our sermon is about. 
And so our broad biblical approach to Exodus 26 will take us from Eden to Exodus to incarnation to eternity. Four tabernacles. We'll start with Eden. You remember that the Bible begins by telling us what we would not otherwise know. That at the very beginning of human existence, God intended to dwell with his people. And so the triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who had enjoyed perfect love, perfect unity for all eternity, decided to create mankind. And the creation of mankind was meant not only to magnify his own glory, but also to open, in a sense, the relationship of the Trinity to his creation. Genesis 1, 26, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heaven, over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. And then the Bible says, and he blessed them. In the Garden of Eden, God created one man and one woman, and he gave them his image, meaning he gave them attributes and qualities of character that reflected him as the creator. He also gave them a kind of authority so that they might reign as vice regents, uh, have dominion over this portion of the creation, so that Adam and Eve could experience what it is like as God reigns and rules. They would share in in some small way what God experiences by reigning and ruling. And God blessed that whole arrangement. The Bible gives us the sense that this was actually just simply meant to be the beginning of a deepening, furthering relationship through obedience, through living faithfully in context with life with Yahweh. Adam and Eve would foster, they would strengthen and develop the relationship so that over time they would grow closer and closer with the Lord. And eventually most Reformed scholars believe that they were meant to come and taste of this tree of life and they were meant to live forever with Almighty God in this blessed state. And yet the sin which entered the Garden of Eden by their rebellion forfeited God's intention for a time, making the world that you live in and your heart so stained by sin that it's often difficult for us to even fathom what the obstacle really is. After the fall, Adam knew what he lost far more than you and I know it. In guilt and shame, Genesis chapter 3, verse 8 says, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. They had, they had walked with God. They knew God. In a very real sense, they had touched the, the face of God, and now they're hiding in the trees, which is what sin always makes us do. Sin makes us not run toward God, but run away from Him. When the space shuttle Challenger exploded in 1986, killing those seven astronauts on board, Ronald Reagan, through the speechwriting help of Peggy Noonan, quoted a line from a poem by John Gillespie McGee. Reagan, Reagan described those Challenger astronauts 
as those who had slipped the surly bonds of earth to touch the face of God. I was in sixth grade. I've never forgotten that phrase. Many of you remember that phrase. Long before Reagan said that phrase, that poem had already struck the hearts of many people. In fact, it was very famous, the most famous poem from World War II. Most people believe that that poem was famous because it taps into the deep longings of our hearts. As one pastor said, you and I were made for friendship and fellowship with God. And it's the way God designed us. Eden is the first place where God tabernacled with man. It's the first time that the dwelling place of God was with man. Not because man himself slipped the surly bonds of earth. But because in the beginning there was no chasm between the dwelling of man and the dwelling of God. And then as if they didn't even realize what they'd lost until it was lost, you and I suddenly find out what they lost at the end of Genesis chapter 3. When God drives Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden, he placed cherubim and flaming swords that turned every way to guard against coming towards the tree of life. On the outside of this first tabernacle, cherubim. And so the first readers of the text that you and I just read would have picked up on the same point, cherubim. Exodus 25, the Ark of the Covenant is overlaid with two cherubs and figuratively speaking, the throne of God is there among the cherubs. Which is why the second tabernacle, Exodus 26, verse 1, all those curtains are to be decorated with cherubim because the God who lives among the cherubs cannot dwell among sinners because sin is the problem. And so your first parents were kept from God by sin, but God overcomes every obstacle to dwell with his people. Now let's look at the second tabernacle. That's what we read in Exodus 26. It's only when you examine that first tabernacle in Eden that you realize that God said something very remarkable to Moses back in chapter 25, verse 8. You remember they pillaged the Egyptians? They had gold and jewelry. God said, give them the privilege of making a free will offering to me. Here's why. Chapter 25, verse 8, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. That would have been remarkable. How can God do that? Why is he willing? These are the people who just read about Adam banished from God's presence. These are the slaves who heard the stories about the patriarchs. God didn't pitch his tent with Abraham, with Isaac, or with Jacob. All they had were little brief visits smoking fire pot, a ram in a thicket, a voice from heaven, a dream. God's willing to pitch his tent in our neighborhood? Yes. Yahweh desires to make himself known. So he has them build the tent. He has them set it up. He has them construct it in all of this detail so that the tabernacle will continuously preach for 
points to them over and over again. The first point, the tabernacle preaches God's glory. Everything in chapter 26 is a picture of heaven on earth. You have images of Eden, which was, of course, a kind of heaven on earth. Later in chapter 28, we're going to see images of pomegranates and grapes and and vines. But angels everywhere. Cherubs overlay their ark. Their images are woven into all of the curtains on every wall and every veil. And everything on the outside of the court is cheaper. But as you move closer and closer into the ark of the covenant, into the place where God's throne sits, it becomes more and more precious from bronze to silver to gold. And Hebrews chapter 8 summarizes this for all those who are in Christ. The writer says all these were copies they're shadows of the real things the people were meant to see and recognize that their ultimate purpose is not to dwell on earth here with a far distant uh, uh, god that they cannot see they're ultimately made to dwell in heaven with god And this tabernacle which preaches God's glory is an invitation to teach them to long for the day when they will eventually be with him in his presence. Number two, tabernacle preached God's authority. You might say it's a microcosm of the whole universe. One pastor said, inside is heaven, outside is the earth. God is at the center of it all. And the heart of the tabernacle is the holy of holies where God reigns. How is this symbolically pictured? Prior to the tabernacle, every time Moses met with God, he walked away from the people. Sometimes up on a mountain, sometimes just away to a remote place. Every time God met with the patriarchs, he met with them away from others. That's why they set up these markers throughout their land, these Ebenezer's stones, reminding them of God's presence in that place. But the tabernacle is set dead in the center of the camp so that the 12 tribes will pitch their tents around Yahweh. The message, well, God's the center of our entire existence His authority extends from heaven to earth, and we must make him the center of our lives. I wonder where you have pitched your tent, where your family sets up camp. Is God, in fact, the center of that camp? I suspect even in your heart, you've got millions of little tents Millions of priorities. I wonder where you've pitched God. Where you've placed him in the middle of that heart. Is he pitched in the center so that everything around is preached in his direction. With his authority and his voice. Because something about all those other tents tells you. About what your priorities are. What does the order and the placement of your priorities say about God's authority in your life? Number three, the tabernacle preached God as a being of supreme holiness. 
Think about it. They are to construct a tent that almost none of them will ever enter. None of them, most will ever even see the inside except when it's broken down and transported. And every time it's reconstructed in a new place, the image is clear. At this moment in redemptive history, this is the one place on earth where God has come to dwell with his people. But the overwhelming sense that you get when you read chapter 26 is covering after covering after covering. And inside, curtain after curtain after curtain. It's been noted by Old Testament scholars that this particular curtain which separates the holy of holies from that most holy place is probably four inches thick. That it takes at least 100 priests to transport just the curtain. The point. This is an infinitely holy God. And your access to him is limited. But it is not fully closed. So the Exodus tabernacle preaches God's glory and God's authority and God's holiness. Number four, the tabernacle preaches one single point of entrance. That is one single access to the presence of God. I mean, it's a giant tent. That's what it is. No back door, no side doors. Verse 36, there's only one point of entrance. That front curtain is the only way to approach him. And so at this time in Old Testament worship, your access to God was only made through a representative who's carrying a blood sacrifice. And at first, that only, the only representative to go forward is Moses. Later on, the high priests will serve that way. And so my point is, except for the priests, no one ever goes in. No one ever sees and enters. Oh, you can stay in the outer court once a year. The rest of the time, you're way out. Once a year, you're going to watch as your representative sacrifices an animal and walks into the tabernacle with blood carried into the holy place and then further beyond into the most holy place where he will spill the blood of that animal on the altar, which is symbolically saying to you and I who are standing in the outer courts, by faith, I believe that the Lord will accept a blood sacrifice to pay for all of my sins. That's actually the Old Testament gospel. Those who are counted as righteous are those who by faith trust the Lord to receive them on his terms. On these terms, there's always one way and only one way to enter the presence of God. There's always one person who can approach the God, this God representing all of the people. And he has to bring this sacrifice to pay for your sins. And these two Old Testament tabernacles, cherubs in Eden, curtains in the temple, they declare this fact. God desires to dwell with his people, but sin is the obstacle that mankind cannot overcome. The New Testament says all of these were shadows. They were signs pointing ahead. In his flesh, man cannot slip the surly bonds of earth and touch the face of God. But God will overcome every obstacle to dwell with his people. So we've looked at the tabernacle in Eden and Exodus, now the incarnation. I think you feel the weight of the tension, don't you? 
In one sense, it's comforting. God wants to dwell with his people. He wants us to know him. In another sense, it's terrifying. That is, God commanded all of this extraordinary detail to make sure you know he is too holy for you to approach him on your own. So how can a holy God dwell with man? The apostle John explains that God did what no man could do. You cannot clothe yourself with divinity. So God took on flesh, John 1.14. It's how he opened our worship this morning. The Word, the eternal Word who was with God, became flesh and dwelt among us. And your English translators use that word, dwelt. And it fits in English, but it doesn't tell you the story. The word is tabernacled. That is, in the person of Jesus Christ, God pitched his tent. The holy God came down and pitched his tent in the camp of sinners. So that while on earth he might so perfectly obey his Father in heaven, that he, as your representative, could enter into the presence of God, carrying forth a blood sacrifice on your behalf to pay for all the sins that always kept you in the outer courts. And there's about 1,400 years from this tabernacle in Exodus to the coming of Christ, the incarnation. And during that time... The tabernacle is eventually replaced by the temple that Solomon built in Jerusalem. But that thick curtain remained from ceiling to floor. It stood. And over the centuries, the temple ransacked, invaded, destroyed by invading armies. Every time it's rebuilt, the curtain is put back in place as a big reminder. You're on the outside because of your sin. John 1, Jesus came and tabernacled among us because ultimately access to God is not granted through a place but through a person. Jesus is this true tabernacle of God. Which is why Jesus would confidently say in John chapter 2 verse 19, Tear down this temple in three days I'll raise it up. Which is why as his body is wasting away, as he gives over his spirit, he dies saying it's finished. And that big, fat, thick curtain in the temple splits, not from bottom to top as if to say mankind can rip the curtain open and gain access to God, but rather from top to bottom because the incarnate Son of God opened your access to the Father by this atoning sacrifice. It's finished. If you want to dwell with God, you must come to the real tabernacle. You must come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who would be counted as righteous before God are those who rest in faith over this same story that our forefathers were looking forward to. One way to enter the presence of God, one mediator, one blood sacrifice, which is why Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 9, I'm the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. John 14, 6, I'm the way. No one comes to the Father but by me. Hebrews 9, 24, Christ has entered not into the holy place made with hands, which are copies of true things, but into heaven itself. Now appearing in the presence of God on our behalf, verse 26, he has appeared once for all 
at the end of the ages to put away sin by a sacrifice of himself. You see, in the Old Testament, they're trusting in the things that are happening behind the curtains that they cannot see. They stood outside. They, they believed that God would receive them through this one representative, entering through the one way, offering a blood sacrifice. And you're saved the exact same way, believing that God receives you as you enter through Jesus Christ who goes before you offering his blood to pay for your sins. In Christ, you see, God overcame every obstacle to dwell with his people. Eden, Exodus, incarnation, one last tabernacle is the one in eternity. You see, the Old Testament tabernacle for them declares that God is determined to dwell with his people no matter what. But there's a lot of no matter what. And in some sense, sitting between Christ's incarnation and his return, you feel the weight of the no matter what. It's a visible expression of his commitment to be with them. Remember, these are people who've been delivered from slavery. They're still living in the desert. They're just now learning about Yahweh. They've recently become aware of their sin. They are so much, in fact, like you and me. In the midst of a dry and desolate world, the tabernacle was meant to say, God will be with you all the way to the promised land and beyond. Christian, you've actually been delivered from slavery too, haven't you? Through the blood of Jesus Christ, you've been freed from the controlling powers that sin once held over you. But you still feel the heat of the desert. You still feel the thirst of this dry and weary land. Even as you're trying to learn about the God who makes himself known. Even as you're trying to learn what it means to throw off the sin which once ensnared you. Some of you know that there are times in the desert when it feels like God is distant. There's so many moments where you continue to sin and it leaves you wondering, how will God overcome all of this to dwell with me? Child of God, lift up your eyes. And look at the true tabernacle at Christ. The fact that God would be willing to pitch his tent among the diseased and the dying. In fact, in the worst neighborhood in the entire cosmos. Well, that's a declaration that God is determined to dwell with you no matter what. Somewhere deep in your soul, you feel this longing. Put in human terms, you feel this longing to slip the surly bonds of earth and touch the face of God. You feel that because you were made for friendship and, and fellowship with God. You know these longings, and he knows you have those longings because he designed you with those longings. So he makes a promise, and then he tells you the story. The promise is found in Matthew 28, 20. Jesus says, I'm with you always to the end of the age. And then the rest of the story, the same John who introduced us to Jesus as the tabernacle shares with us an image of another tabernacle. It's a restoration of what Eden was to become. Only this time, the dwelling place of God with man cannot be, will not be, must never be cannot be forfeited by sin. The Bible closes by speaking to your deepest longings.
Revelation 21. I saw, the, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things, that is, all the obstacles to God's presence dwelling among us, have passed away. That is, God overcomes every obstacle to dwell with his people. May God comfort you and me as we wait for this day. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the true tabernacle of Christ. We thank you for the promises of your presence with us. We promise, we thank you also, Father, for the certainty that there will be a day in a new heavens and a new earth when even we cannot create obstacles and you will be with your people. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.